This is Real Estate Rookie, episode 163. You just made a little bit of progress every single day, you will get to your dreams. Whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, it will be much quicker than you think. It's a snowball, but if you don't start it now, you'll wake up at 50 building somebody else's dream. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I am here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to The Real Estate Rookie, where, where every week, twice a week, we give you the inspiration, information, motivation that you need to get started as a real estate investor, or keep going if you already started. So Ashley, what's what's going on? So as you can see, I am not in the closet. Tony's not in his office and we have someone sitting in between <laughs> us. So we are actually in Tennessee right now in one of Tony's short-term rentals. So Tony, do you want to just give like a little uh, brief overview real quick of yeah, cabin? Yeah. So we bought this cabin a couple months ago, but as part of the purchase of this contract or the purchase of this property, we had to honor a property management contract from the previous owner. So they had it under contract at the end of the year. So we took over control officially this week. So we figured let's come out, let's see what it's like and decided to invite Ashley along and our awesome guests. So we're all kind of here breaking in the cabin for the first time. Yeah. So today we're just going to be doing a live podcast. We also have a meetup tonight that we're doing. So hopefully if you guys are listening in Tennessee, we actually met each other, you know, a couple <laughs> yeah, months ago and this is recorded. So Ashley and I want to start doing this a little bit more often, right? We got our, our rookie road trip. We're just going to kind of pop around in different markets that we like, markets that we're investing in and uh, kind of set up shop, interview a guest on spot, on location, and then hopefully have a meetup and meet some cool people. Yeah. So we actually put out an Instagram post that we wanted to interview somebody in person. And the first person that reached out to us was Andrew. Sorry, not the first person. The best person that reached out to us was... Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five-star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, 
allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself? So my name is Andrew, Andrew Brzee. That's what my mother named me. Most people call me Breezy, but you guys can call me whichever you prefer. So I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, about two and a half hours from here. And I'm really, really excited to get on here and tell my story. When I was a little kid, I think like most people, I had dreams of what I was going to be, but I figured it out a little earlier than most. I mean, I'm sure you guys have never heard the story of a 15-year-old reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Never been heard on this podcast before. But I read that and I got so obsessed with real estate, with financial freedom, and I never thought about money in a a traditional way. Again, I didn't want to work for somebody else. You were poisoned from an early and age. How old are you now? I'm 33. Okay. So that I was 15 or 16. I don't remember the exact time, but all the riddling in the world couldn't get me to focus at school. <laughs> and then I told my dad and I just wouldn't stop talking about rich dad, poor dad and how excited I was. And so we went to Florida on vacation and he said, I will buy you whatever book you want. However many books you want to read, Just let me know what you want. So I left the condo twice that entire week. I read like 2,000 pages as a 16-year-old. And I was hooked from then on. And I didn't get started as a 16-year-old, unfortunately. But I knew from then on, I wanted to be a real estate investor. And I didn't want to work for somebody else for the rest of my life. Just out of my own curiosity, like what introduced you to the book? Did you just stumble upon it? Somebody gave it to my dad, told him my dad was a pastor and my mom was a nurse Mm -hmm. growing up. And someone at church said, hey, you should read this book and you should give it to your kids. And my dad respected that person enough to follow that, read it, and then give it to me. And I I actually don't know who that was, but it was pretty fortuitous for me. Yeah, that's awesome. So after that, you've read that information, then what happens when you graduate school? You go to college or you pick up a nine to five job that you didn't want? What happens there? A small private school that had really good study abroad options. Mm -hmm. So I went to Italy to study abroad, same tuition, all the classes transferred, great. I meet the girl in my dreams, my now wife, and I don't come home for two years because I couldn't leave. And what I learned during that experience, why I think that's relevant to our conversation today, Mm -hmm. is I learned that not taking no for an answer and and being like, how can I do this? Mm -hmm. Because I went to the office of the school and I said, I want to stay here and I want to work for you guys. I'll clean dishes, I'll clean floors, whatever it is. And they laughed. They you stayed, at, you stayed at the university. I stayed at the school. I thought you were stuck in Italy. I thought that's right. <laughs> no, no. So I, I voluntarily stayed at the school because uh, I didn't want to come home. I met the girl in my dreams. And I was like, I've messed up. I, I can't go home now. And so I got laughed out of that office. The yeah. school director said, hey, every year, you're a nice kid, but every year kids want to stay. This is paradise for you. Yeah. You're here in downtown Florence, Italy. You're living the dream. This is not a place for you to stay. And I said, okay. And I came, I knew that they, how they worked, they worked on guys had to get their visas or girls had to get their visas coming into work at that school. And I was told by several employees that oftentimes visas get denied and they have to pull kids out of the community to work there. And so the second I found out that visas had been denied, I was back in that office, still told me no. But a few weeks later, I mean, I, I just kept persistently going in there and telling them, hey, I'm still available. I still want to stay. I only have a one-way ticket. I'm not planning on going home. <laughs> they relented. They paid me 90 euros a month. They gave me a room and board. So I had access to the cafeteria and I literally scrubbed floors and cut vegetables and did whatever was needed. I made beds, anything that was needed. 
at the school for a whole another 14 months before I went home. Uh, and then my wife and I got married. And then I did not get a nine to five at first. I tried to figure out what I was doing in my life. Dropped out of school. Didn't need a liberal arts degree to be a real estate investor and didn't want a bunch of student debt. That led to me working some seasonal jobs, getting my CDL, getting a job driving a truck. And doing what would a kind of be a house hack at my parents' house. My parents were super generous with us, let us move into the basement. And we took six years off and on building a full apartment in the basement. So we mm-hmm. put in every Sunday for eight hours. And then whenever we could during the week, we built a full bathroom, a full kitchen, put in a laundry room, put a bedroom. We put a window below grade. Oh, I mean, yeah. we did everything. It flooded at one point because the water main broke and we repaired all of that. I put in a sub panel. If the county's listening, this was all permitted and good. But I, what I did learn is that I could do a lot of this with hustle and I, with work. And so when we did save up, when my wife got out of nursing school and I had progressed in my job into sales after driving a truck at a beer distributor, I was able to then buy a house hack and move out onto my own with some skills and not just YouTube for the first time. I'd already done that for a little while. You know, I love stories of perseverance, right? And just kind of like rolling with the punches that life gives you. And and like you said, not taking no for an answer. There are a lot of skills that people, technical skills that I think people need to develop to become a good real estate investor. We talk about those a lot on the show, but there are also a lot of soft skills that people need to develop to be good real estate investors. And a big one is having the, I don't know, the, the grit to be able to kind of roll with the things that life throws at you, man. So I love you. You know, I love the fact that you shared that story because I think it exemplifies that really well. Yeah, the stick to itiveness. I was not taking over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all, while all this was happening, real estate was still at the back of your mind. And then when did it become time to actually take action on it? So I started thinking about it a little bit and I found the perfect fourplex that will forever mm-hmm. haunt me. Um, <laughs> we didn't get it, spoiler alert, because at that time it was about $425,000 my wife had just started working or was just about to start working. I had, had maybe been working for a few years, making 40000 or $38,000 a year. And we did not have our financial house in order. We weren't bad, but we didn't have a ton of credit. We weren't mm-hmm. ready. And so it comes on the market. I'm just starting to look around. I see it. It is walking distance from all of my favorite bars, all of my favorite restaurants. It is right off the main drag. It sold for like $750,000 last year, uh, just a few years later. So it would have been amazing, but I couldn't afford it. But what that did is plant the seed that, okay, it's time. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not that far away. So at that point, we were dinks, dual income, no kids. We saved about $40,000 over a couple years. And then in 2017, uh, we started looking in earnest for a house to buy. We wanted to house hack, and we were looking for duplexes specifically. I think Tony wants you to go over the word dinks again. <laughs> you heard this I've never heard that phrase before, yeah. but dual income, no, no kids. kids. But it reminds like me part like of the Doug Funny, right? Like, is that where it's from? I don't I know. Have no idea. It's, where it's from like the personal finance community. Oh, uses really? It. Yeah. Wait, if you guys know Doug Funny from the '90s Nickelodeon yeah, TV yeah. show, his neighbors they were the dinks. Oh, really? They were dual income. They had no kids. <laughs> oh, so no, I saw it on the internet one day and I had, I was at a bar like so at some point someone was like, oh yeah, we're all dinks. And I'm like, what? And then like, once like that got in my brain though, that became yeah. like the greatest way to describe yeah. those of us who are in a different path, right? We were in our mid twenties, no kids yeah. and dual income. So yeah. we're able to save a significant amount of money compared to the average person. Kids are expensive and living at home with my parent just paying 350 or $400 a month in utilities. That's all they would let us pay. Allowed us to really set up a nice footing and I'd be forever grateful for that. 
Yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about the work you were doing in the basement? Was there an agreement between you and your parents to say, hey, we're going to do all this work and then we're going to rent it out? Or like, are you just doing the work so you had a nice place to live? Like, what was the thought process behind that? It's a little bit of both. I did tell my parents that as kind of a selling point. And I'm really lucky that my parents have trusted my judgment. My dad and I are kind of the same person. So that's helpful. We definitely think things alike in a lot of ways. So that's helpful. But I told them initially, hey, we don't know where we want to go. I don't want to get a mortgage or rent because then I will be stuck in a job. I want to do real estate or maybe I'll go back to school or something, but I, this is a bad decision. Me just going out and getting a job, flipping burgers or whatever I can to just pay rent. So they were like, cool, move into the basement. Well, my wife didn't love that idea, but she trusted me as well. And once we moved in, my dad helped me put a wall in. And then he was basically like, whatever you want to do down here, We'll cover the money and the materials and whatever else. We don't have the money to pay for somebody to come do the work, but we'll put this on old people credit cards, we'll put this on those credit cards. You can just buy the materials and you can do the work, whatever you think we want to do. Once you move out, we'll rent it. And I was like, cool, that is exactly how I hoped this would work. And that was how it worked. And now we're actually in a partnership on you know, something different later on that we can talk about that I, this laid the groundwork for and we were much more explicit about. But luckily, all's well that ends well. Working with family can be very, very tough. But my parents are really nice and we got along. So it worked out. With your family in that apartment in the basement. So they do have it rented out now? Yes. So it became an immediately a rental as soon as we moved out. They had to learn how to be landlords. That was a little tough for them. And then they've actually moved out to take care of my grandparents now. Mm -hmm. And I manage both the upstairs and the downstairs oh, of that okay. property now. Okay. So then let's go back to you. So your first property then let's talk, go through that. Sure. So we actually got a duplex off market. And the way that happened was this is my belief on her motivation. We ended up with a real estate agent, didn't know what I didn't know. So I went to a guy that was a mortgage broker and I was like, Hey man, I know you, I trust you. I know you won't screw me over on purpose. So let's do a loan together. And I don't have a real estate agent. And if I had known about bigger box at the time, really followed what was behind, I, I kind of knew it was there, but I was close enough attention. And so he gave me a, a real estate agent, I think brand new, but what she did have was like the ability, I guess, to like follow what we wanted. So we had very clear what we wanted. We wanted at least two bedrooms on each side. We wanted side by side, not up and down. And we wanted at least one and a half bathrooms. We had been in a one bed, one bath for six years. My wife had lived through a construction zone. So we wanted something that was at least almost livable. That didn't really happen, but it was close. <laughs> and, but really wanted two bathrooms. And so that was kind of what we decided on. And we probably toured six or seven properties. There wasn't a lot available. And then none of those made any sense. We wanted to be in what's called Red Bank, which is a particularly hot part of the market now. It was unbelievably hot at the time. And so after six or seven properties, and we were very specific in what we wanted, our real estate agent said, hey, would you be interested in looking at two duplexes on the same lot that my sister owns in Brainerd? And both my wife and I were, were not really interested in being in Brainerd, but there's no reason not to look. No reason not to check it out. So we go there, we tour them both. They're on one lot, technically subdivided because they're deep lots, but I mean, they're right together. You would not want to own one and not the other. They share a driveway, they share a parking, they share mailboxes, they share steps up. I mean, it's, it's all together. And so eventually we decide, okay, this is actually a really good opportunity. One of these duplexes with two units is two beds, one and a half baths each. Side by side, exactly what we wanted, just old and beat up, needed love. 
and the other set are one bedroom, one bath loft apartments. So it's an open loft, similar to what this has here with the game room. And so we were like, I don't know about these one bedrooms, but two duplexes for the same price that we were looking at, ballpark for these other duplexes in the areas we liked. Okay, let's take a shot. So we settled on $250,000 at overall purchase price for both. That was going to so be for all four units. units. All four units. Wow. So it was going to be 130 and 120. I think that's the breakdown, but it was definitely 250 total. I have a piece of advice for the chain how I do things after that. But we go through the first, buy one at a time, didn't have any paperwork on the second one. So they could have sold the second one out right from under us. They didn't. They hadn't listed it on the MLS. And she represented both sides of the transaction. So could have got totally screwed because it's her sister she was representing. But she was great. Everything went well up until a priest. And the smaller duplex was supposed to be 120000 It appraised for 98000 The duplex was supposed to be 130 appraised for 118000 And I know now what happened. It said these duplexes sit on a ridge that divides downtown from the suburbs, more or less. It's a dividing line geographically. There's not a lot of duplexes in that area. The comps they pulled were from a rough neighborhood just over the ridge, and as the crow flies, a couple hundred yards, but isn't wildly, and you have to go several miles to get there. That would be like comparing the house that sits right above us, which is a million dollar house, but it's up the ridge at the very top overlooking the city, whereas we're down toward the bottom of the ridge. So they got a really bad appraisal, but their calculus was, at least my understanding, we pay cash for these, we put a little bit of work, we cash flow a ton of money out of them, and we subdivide them, so we're making our money back. They wanted to go for Christmas to Bali, which I think they did once like a month, <laughs> uh, which is good for them. Uh, and so they said, let's just close at the lower price. But the thing was- So they, they took the appraisal They price. took the appraisal wow. price. Wow. Let's pause on that yeah. for a second, right? Because I think that's a really big- I don't know, like lesson, clue, something for Ricky investors to understand is that every seller is motivated by something, but it's not always money. It's not always getting the biggest return that they can possibly get. Your sellers wanted to go to Bali. If they put it on the market, it would have been sold in February or March, maybe or something. They wanted to go to Bali for Christmas, right? Yeah. Which was a very specific time frame that they had to operate within. And as the buyer... Your job to get the best deal possible is to solve the seller's biggest problem. Yes. And my wife and I only had about $40,000. And so they were actually already taking, we talked about the loans we use, whatever else, but they were already taking some of the closing costs. Mm -hmm. So we renegotiated a little bit, but we had no extra money. Or we do the deal so that we are roughly $40,000 out of pocket or we can't do it. And so we were putting three and a half percent down with an FHA loan on the owner-occupied, more expensive one. And then we put down 25% conventional on the second one. And were these both through like a local bank? No, these were through a mortgage broker okay. who, uh, great guy, but didn't do a ton, I don't think, of investment stuff. So not the guy who's now, no ill will, but I think that the transaction was a little bit more difficult that way. But the good part was he was previously the in-house loan guy at Keller Williams. So he knew he's the one who recommended her because he called them and said, hey, like, can I get a real estate agent for these guys? Like, so he has some good relationships there. So he worked really seamlessly with us and her and really just we worked it around. So we worked the closing costs out. So we took slightly less of a discount. After the whole transaction ended, we had about $2,000 in the bank. And that's as low as we could go. And then you know, we went from no mortgage payments to two mortgage payments. And we did not buy them simultaneously. We bought one month in October, I think, and the second one we closed in November. 
So just back to back, we started the process. I mean, literally the day it closed. Were they rented out already? And what was becoming a landlord like for the first time, especially going from zero to three units that you're managing and living in one of those units too, along with your tenants? It was fun. It was really fun. Uh, I was super, super excited. It was the winter time, so my work was a little bit slower. And first thing we did was say, okay, which of these four units is in best shape that we can get on the market? They were previously all four short-term rentals. This was Airbnb at the beginning in Chattanooga. They didn't do any sort of tax collection. There was no city ordinance. Now there are permits required. There's city ordinances. There's a whole zone. That road, in fact, our side of the road is in the overlay that allows short-term rentals, the other side of the road, 35 feet from the front door is not allowed. So that was pure luck that happened later. Let me comment on that really quickly because that's something that I talk about a lot too when we talk about choosing a market for short-term rentals is that I've personally shied away from markets that haven't established ordinances yet. Because like you said, you got lucky that you were 35 feet the right way, right? But had you gone 35 feet the other way, now you're caught holding the back for something that that maybe doesn't work as well. So just for the listeners, I think it's important to kind of do that research. That's the very first thing I do before I go into a market is understand what the policies are. And we did not buy these to be short-term rentals. I'll explain the breakdown of the four units and what we did with each one. But we bought them as cash-flowing rentals. We believed they would cash flow. But They were all short-term rentals, so we kind of saw how that was and thought, well, this would be interesting. And then the two one-bedroom units, there's three parking spaces between the two of them. Really, though, there's only one parking space each because the hill that the two one-bedrooms sit on, the shared driveway, can only fit four cars total, and it's a nightmare if you've got four cars parked there. So we let the tenants park two cars for the bigger unit that's next Mm -hmm. to us. I park one car on the hill so everyone can get in and out easier. And then my wife parks down below in one of the three parking spaces. So that leaves two parking spaces. Even if there were three, it's not as big a deal. But what matters is if you were to rent that property out yearly, who's going to stay in a rental? One bedroom, one bath, so nice affordable housing potentially. But who's going to stay there when you literally cannot park more than one car there? There's no street parking. It's a busy road. You would stay there one year at the most, and you'd be out of it. And so it wouldn't be a good investment for us. So we believed, hey, let's try this furnished rental thing. So of the four units, the two outside units of each building, so the outside one-bedroom unit was in pretty good shape. We furnished that in about a month, got it on Airbnb. Maybe it was, yeah, right about a month. Started our adventure there, blind leaving the blind, didn't know anybody who did anything, didn't have any friends that were doing it. So definitely Googled, but like right now, there are tons of stuff all over YouTube you can watch. I mean, I watched one of Tony's videos where it made me want to buy a cabinet. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about- <laughs> And now even more being in one of those I was driving all the way up here going, no, Andrew, stick, stick to what you're supposed to do. Like, no shiny object syndrome. Yeah. Uh, but we got that one up. We kind of figured out our way through that. We actually moved into the other one bedroom next to it because it was in decent shape, but it needed a little bit of work. We got the first two bedroom unit as quickly as we could we did a basic rehab. We painted the countertops. We put in a few new fixtures. I mean, just the bare minimum. It was it needed love. The only thing we did was hire somebody to come in and remove the laundry room, which was just laundry hookups in the kitchen. There's a patio and there's a room off each patio. It's a storage room. We had them re-drywall. And since the patio room and the kitchen lined up together, they could pull plumbing and pull power easily through the wall and put a laundry room in there. So that's the one money we paid someone else to do. And then we fixed that up, got that on the regular market. 
got down as a regular long-term rental and then completely gutted the unit we were going to move into, which was the roughest unit of the four. Eventually moved into that one. Then we redid the one bedroom unit we've been living in, got all four stabilized. That probably took six months or so. So over the course of six months, you and your wife were just kind of moving from unit to unit, shuffling the rehabs around, get through them all and, and knock them out and get them rent ready. Yes. Nights, weekends, took every Saturday completely off. But other than that, it was just all hands on deck every moment we could possibly put in before work, after work, whatever we could get. So sorry, just to clarify. So what was the final decision on which ones were long-term, which one were short-term? Okay. So then as we were figuring out what to do, we had the one bedroom that was already short-term and then we had the two bedroom, one and a half bath that was long-term. We left that one as long-term because we didn't want to mess with the parking situation and it was next door to us. So we wanted to live next door to either people we liked, which we ended up bringing to a lot of friends, which I think is something that's fun to talk about. And we wanted to live next door to the same people and not have new people coming in. If somebody throws a party next door to you, it's kind of annoying. So <laughs> didn't want to have that. The other unit, and this is what has actually really changed our investing, the other one-bedroom unit needed more work. And in order to qualify for permits, at first it was a monetary decision, but monetary in the sense that it needed more work. So I didn't want to put as much work into it. And I wanted some stability. So we're like, oh, let's try it furnished and see what we can do. And then we couldn't permit it. So I didn't want to risk getting in trouble. And so we put it for monthly furnished rentals. And we had thought that we had been told by actually our real estate agent that she was like, hey, if this was me, by the way, I would do these all like month long. This nightly rentals were really hard. That didn't really set in for a few months because it was six months later or so that we actually got that one done and on the market. But we started that one. We got our first booking, I think, three months. And that three months turned into six months. Can you just explain, like, what is a monthly booking and what are the type of people that come? You know, is it people that are working virtually and just want to somewhere for a month? But who is the person that books for a month? Absolutely. So that's actually changed a lot over the past couple of years for us and our business. But at the beginning, exclusively traveling nurses and people on internship. And I learned a lot about how to market to those folks. But at the beginning, we got a bunch of requests, I think because it was a one bedroom, one bath on the other side, it was pretty cheap. We didn't have a lot of reviews. So we used a lower price to try to get good reviews, take care of people, et cetera, et cetera. We got a lot of messages saying, hey, would you be willing to rent this out for a longer period? And so we would actually this one, no, but we have one next door. It's exactly the same layout. Here's the literally the booking link. Check it out and see what you think. So we started that one at $1,000 a month, actually $33 a day. Maybe the first month was $30 a day. I don't remember. But at 31 days, you have a drop-off in Chattanooga of taxes and fees. So it becomes more affordable to rent. So that's the first thing. The other thing is, I don't know if this is everywhere, but in Chattanooga, the ability to rent out a one-bedroom, one-bath with kitchen and laundry and the things you would want to live in, it's hard. There's very few of them. So we kept getting these inquiries. Can we rent out your place? And again, almost always professional folks, either traveling nurses or people doing medical internships because the university is just over the way. That has changed. And we have had, now had some folks building a home that wanted to build a home and so they needed a place to work from home from. We've had several people rent it out for six or eight weeks at a time instead of two, three, or four months. And they're just traveling digital nomads. And that's so I've got a little mix of the two now, but it started out as just folks who needed usually almost exactly three months because a lot of those internships were summer internships for three months or traveling nurses who had either a six week contract or a 12 week contract. How are you finding them? Is that they're coming to you from Airbnb or I've heard of the traveling nurses websites? Are there different places you're looking have, for these people? We have not had great luck with Furnished Finder. 
although I, I have my a different listing on that, it has been almost exclusively an Airbnb. And actually in 2021, we really, really changed our amount of money we were getting for these units because I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I had the time and I really sat down, tried to get a better pricing structure and realized I was underpriced. And this is the first tactical tip. If you want to rent for three months at a time, this is not my idea. I learned this from YouTube. Put a little dash or something on the end and ideal for long stays or perfect for long stays. There's a character limit there, so you got to get creative. But make it clear in your booking that you are looking for long stays. I only accept 31 plus days. I'll do 33 days if you want, but you gotta have 31 at the beginning. And I leave that in the first part of this. So when you're looking at your Airbnb listing and someone's pulling it up, the very first part of the description, right below it, I make sure before you gotta click the more, I make sure there's, we are only looking for bookings of at least 31 days at this time. But in the title, it says ideal for long stays. And that has increased both of our listing views in the analytics on Airbnb and our bookings, I mean, exponentially. And I think that is because we were initially getting these views from folks looking for a one bedroom that they can hit up to be like, hey, is there any chance you'd rent this out? I don't have instant book on, which is one of the things that gets you high in the SEO. On this particular unit, because I'm a little more, it's monthly, so I want to be sure I know who I'm talking to and whatever else. So getting that, putting ideal for long-term stay made a lot more people click on it that were looking for that exact same thing. And from there, it's a, it's a little bit of a negotiation. And what I like about those tenants is if you have the money to spend 1200 plus fees, so $1,600, $1,700 a month, which what they're paying now, probably got a pretty good financial backing. So there's less chance of you not paying. And additionally, you're probably taking it more seriously than somebody looking to party for a weekend and booking your place. So one of the downsides of short-term rentals can be that someone could trash your place, they throw a big party, and if you're booking the place for three months, and I tell you I live next door, and there's only one parking space, and we love it, but I tell you I love the neighborhood, my wife and I love the neighbor, we live next door, we've never had any problems. I'm not telling you you're not welcome there, I'm letting you know that if you party next door to your landlord, that's not gonna be fun. So it really, for my quality of life, I turn over the unit every two, three or four months and I still get almost as much as I would get as a short-term rental. One question is out of curiosity because I know we have times where we have guests to check in and they just kind of drive us crazy with the amount of questions that they ask and information that we've already given them, but they're saying that they don't have. When you're walking distance from your guests, right? When they can just kind of walk over and knock on the door, do you see that happening a lot or are they pretty chill for the most part? Just what's your experience? And they knocking, you know, so peeking close? in the window. Yeah. <laughs> so these units sit so close together. My unit and this unit are the two inside units. There are not windows on my side of the house, but if there were, we could see into each other's units. I have the fence that runs across and touches both houses. I took the whole yard from that house so my dogs have somewhere to go. So they have a patio, but they have no side yard. So it's they're very close. I also keep a bunch of tools, don't come around me, and it's like vacuum cleaners and random stuff in the back patio closet. I make all of that abundantly clear from the beginning. Hey, you might see me coming to get the weed eater to weed eat the inside of my fence. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I don't know how this is with you, but there's a certain spidey sense you get when somebody reaches out to you and how they communicate and how they talk to you about whether they're gonna be trouble. I've had one tough tenant and he paid through the whole pandemic and so even though I had about a $1,500 rehab after he left, because he smoked in the unit, even though he said he didn't, and a few other things, that's the worst experience I had. I'm picky. I'm not trying to be, I just try to lay everything out before. And if I'm really clear with folks, we live next door, it's one parking space, and I tell people the honest about the good and the bad of the unit, 
And then if you're polite and communicating in a way that is normal, we're good. If you're like, if it's one or two words, like how much? Well, the listing price is, <laughs> is right there, right? Like, can I have pets? That just sounds no. like when you list a property on the Facebook marketplace. Yeah. <laughs> those are the responses you What's get. What's the price? Same, yeah. same type of thing. So I definitely shy away from some of those folks a little bit, but I have been, we've been really lucky. And even in our short term, the one next door, we've had in since 2017, late 2017, maybe four tough experiences. And even those were not that bad. Mm. And I think a lot of that is preparation. Some of that is luck. And some of that is a one-bedroom apartment doesn't get a ton of parties. So, so give us the kind of time frame, Breezy. How long ago did you purchase that duplex and what's kind of transpired since then? So we purchased both of those in 2017, October, November. And the first year, I think when I did my math, I think we cleared about $750 total for the property on top of all expenses, not including setting aside anything for CapEx, but including repairs that we spent. Okay. Last year, we were about $600. That one in 2019 were about $600 a month, similar for 2020. 2020 was tough because one of the units went empty for a whole month. And then we transitioned to how can we get somebody in this one bedroom, one bath that's normally nightly for three months. So again, that was about 600 bucks a month total. So you're thinking $300 a door, it's not terrible. And it's providing my internet, right? Since they were on one lot, my lawn mowing is all billed to that. My every expense that I can pop, my pest control, everything is built to that address, and they happen to serve my duplex next door too. So I'm getting some benefits there, but it was not as good as 2021. So I don't have final 2021 numbers. I haven't sat down and crunched November and December, but we're on pace to make about $1,200 a month. That's awesome. So we've doubled our profit, and we did an extensive rehab on the units. We put in all new siding, about $6,000 worth of siding repair, as well as several others couple thousand dollars here, a couple thousand dollars there. So I think close to $10,000 in repairs. And we still cleared about $1,200 a month total between the two of them. And that's after they paid for all of my personal internet because I share the internet. Yeah. All of my personal lawn mowing because I share the lawn mowing. <laughs> like I paid for all of that pest control. So it was a real home run in 2021. And a lot of that came from doing my homework and trying to make sure I was a, ran a better business and changing my pricing too, all by watching YouTube and trying to make sure I was doing a better job. I mean, it's a really good house hack effectively, right? I love the idea of combining the short-term stay with the medium stay with the long-term stay. Like, I don't think I've met anyone that's kind of played with all of those on one parcel before, but it seems to be working out really well for you. So when the pandemic hit, the nightly one went completely empty. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything canceled out and we were just done. And so it was a month of being like, well, what, what do we do? And I've always thought this from the very beginning that if something terrible ever happens, it's okay that I haven't spent the money and fixed this other one up and gone nightly because at least that $1,000 a month will cover the mortgage and most of the utilities. And that's exactly what it did. Even though it was rough, at least like mentally, and we didn't have the money coming in, we were you know, maybe $500 in the hole with all those extra expenses, including lawn mowing and the other things. Instead of being, if both of them had gone empty, we'd have been you know, $1,800 in the hole when bigger pockets started podcasting no one thought we needed a store but then books so many books best-selling books rookie books partnership books we needed the best real estate bookstore ever so we chose shopify Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch stage to the first order stage to the did we just sell out the whole store stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout? up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the Bigger Pockets bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash bprookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash bprookie now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash bprookie. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com biggerpockets. Andrew, before we move on to our segments, I just want to ask you for our mindset segment is if you could do anything different or just like looking back, is there something that you thought about real estate that you realized wasn't exactly true now? I don't know if mindset wise, I thought I could do more than more or better than others. Mm -hmm. So we bought another duplex and I ended up when I quit my job rehabbing that for an entire year. That was Real estate is really forgiving, especially in this market, so it all worked out. But I wasted half of that year at least and a ton of money, and I've missed out on all sorts of opportunities because I was stuck in this, like, I need to protect my cash because it's a pandemic, and what happens if they go empty, and what happens? And so I should have farmed things out sooner. I should have realized several months in instead of a year in that I need to pay others to do it. And yeah, from now on, I have put my tools literally in storage. I can get to them if I want to do a project at my own house, but I put my tools in storage so it's hard for me to get to them so that I have to call somebody. Can we talk about that just really quickly? Because I think that's something that a lot of new investors, it's kind of like a trap that they get caught in where they think that they're saving money 
by self-performing a lot of the work, but in the long run, it's actually costing them. And like, let's give like a real life example or not a real life example. Let's give an example, I guess is the word I'm looking for, right? But as an example, right? Like, let's say that, I don't know, hiring a general contractor, like a handyman to do the work would cost you $10,000, but they'd be done in two months. Or you could self-perform the work and it'll cost you $3,000, but it's going to take you eight months, right? And say that you could rent that property out once it's done for $1,500 a month. If you do all that math, even though there's a bigger cash outlay up front, the time that you're losing by not renting that property out is going to surpass the amount of money that you save by, or that you think you save by not hiring that general contractor. So that my soul. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if those numbers actually add up because I made that up as I was talking, but you guys get the gist of what I'm talking about. And just like physical labor on your body. Yeah. And I do think there's something to hustling at the beginning, right? If you don't have a good W-2, if you don't have a ton of extra money, yeah. we put in $40,000 into those four units together and six months and we worked our tails off. That was a good use of my time at the time because my ability to get another deal was contingent on me getting those units up mm -hmm. and going, spending the least amount of money possible because I didn't have any money left. But later on, it was the exact opposite. I was still in the frame of mind that I was going to do what I did before and I was not treating like a business when I should. I'm so glad you said that because I think that's a really important distinction to make is that do what you're able to do financially, right? Like I remember when I first started, when I first got interested in real estate, I was a broke college kid. And I hear these big real estate investors talking about how they outsource this and I don't do any tasks that's under a thousand dollars an hour. And I'm trying to think like, okay, yeah, you know, I should start outsourcing these things, but I'm like, with what money? <laughs> like who's going to pay these people to do these things that I'm supposed to be doing? A lot of contractors, especially if they're not big outfits, don't take credit cards. That's been my experience, please. So now I do have some relationship with folks that can take credit cards. So I could do some risky things. Right. I did yeah. a ton of that on two more rehabs, but I didn't know at the time how to do that. So yeah, I was just pinching every penny. I could put the materials on a card, but I, the labor was all me. Right, right. Yeah, what Andrew's talking about right there is actually a really great rehab tool is to buy the materials with a 0% interest credit card. That's 0% for 12 months or 18 months. And then once you flip the property or refinance it, you go ahead and pay that credit card off before you actually pay interest on it. But yeah, if you can get a contractor, then you can cover all of your rehab costs. And, and look, it's it's a little risky, right? But yeah. if you've done a couple, if you mm -hmm. know how to do it, it's okay. And if you get a yeah. Lowe's credit card, for example, Lowe's has 5% off, so you can get savings, or six months or 12 months, depending on the purchase. So you can really play the game and finance your stuff on a credit card, like you're saying, mm -hmm. and just buy materials and pick your battles on how you want to take things. And then all you need is the cash to pay your contractor. Or if your contractor is willing, they'll take a credit card and maybe charge you 3% or whatever else. And you can even do that with a 0% interest. You just got to be careful because you don't want to overextend. And right. Then, you don't want to over leverage yeah. yourself. You don't want to be stuck in credit card debt because yeah. once that 12 months hit and the interest rate goes to what, 25, 30%. And you pay all the accrued interest <laughs> right. from all that. Yeah. But I mean, that's, you can do it and it's all about being creative and figuring out, don't bite off more than you can chew, but also don't be stuck like I was in a mindset that held me back. Let's go on to our rookie request line. So this is where you guys can call in at one 5 rookie and leave a voicemail with your question and we may play it on the show for our guest to answer. So today's question. Hello, this is Michael Pereira from Clovis, California. My question was around, do you use an LLC or C-Corp, an S-Corp? 
when you're starting a partnership with somebody. I heard you talk a lot about partnerships, but not necessarily how to legally frame them. Also, just for the shout-outs on the Teslas, I bought a Tesla and I rented out on Turo on every weekend, and it pays for the bill for the Tesla. And it's been two and a half years and I haven't made a payment yet, so that's for your partner that's always saying they want a Tesla. So just a little tip there. So in a partnership, I use an LLC. I'm not a tax attorney. Consult your lawyers. I don't play one on podcast. However, what I was told by my tax attorney was that if you have a multi-member LLC, different families, different people, it is good to have an LLC. It is important for asset protection and it is better for everybody. I do most of my business in a sole proprietorship because what I was told is it's very easy to pierce that veil of a single member LLC. And then if it's my wife and I in an LLC, that a judge is going to look at that and say, that's yours. This is not a real business unless you follow everything to the T. So that's the advice that I took. I think you could do it either way, but I would recommend hitting up. And then the way I found a lawyer, and I think this is a good way to do it. I got this from Bigger Pockets. Write a post for your Facebook, ask for recommendations for a lawyer that you're looking for. If you have a real estate group you're a member of, like the rookie real estate group, post, see if anybody in your area has recommendations. Make that same post on Bigger Pockets. Come back the next day or two days later, put all those responses together, see if there's multiple people, and then interview three. You got to interview three. And the reason is not because the third one's going to for sure be better than the first one. You will not know the questions you need to ask the first one until you've interviewed the first one and taken that 10 minutes. What should I do? How should I do it? Why should I hire you? And the second one, you'll ask better questions. By the third one, you will know if the first one, second one, or third one is a better fit for you, and you will know what you're asking about, and you can make an informed decision. Every time I have done that, I have had a better outcome than just randomly picking somebody. That's such great advice, and the point that you make about that when you ask the first one, you're not going to know all the questions, so you talk to all three. That's really good And it feels, I'm the kind of person that that feels really daunting, and so if you just sit down and make that list Mm -hmm. and call those three people all right in a row if you can do it, it will pay off in the end. It will save you potentially thousands of dollars on contractor bids, Mm -hmm. contractor bids, anything you're doing. If you just bite the bullet and get three or five or however many you're willing to get, you will save money and you will learn about that process so that you make an educated decision, not just get the easy button. And a lot of attorneys do like the free initial call too. That doesn't even cost anything to initially talk with them. Yeah, just one last comment on that. I think a lot of new people have this misconception that you need to have an LLC to do a partnership, but that's not really the case, right? Like you said, an LLC is more so for asset protection for liability purposes. But if you just want to partner with someone, I mean, as long as you guys have the details of your partnership, of your agreement outlined between each other, that's all you really need. Like we have joint venture agreements that we use for all of our partnerships. We don't necessarily create a new LLC every time that we create a new partnership with someone. Yeah, I see with me, I haven't done it. Well, I'm doing my first joint venture now, but previously I've only done an LLC and I do an LLC with each partner. So the properties that I buy with partner A, they all go into that LLC. Partner B, our properties together all go into that other LLC. And I think that works because you guys are buying multiple properties right. together. Yeah. But like, like for have us, so we have right, we have nine properties that we have partners with. So to have nine separate LLCs, I didn't quite make a ton of sense for. So and it's that operating agreement, in my opinion, that's the important part, right? Make sure you have all that stuff laid out. If expectations are off, partnerships are really tough. If expectations are clear, partnerships are not that hard. 
kind of awesome in my experience. But you got to have it all clear and you have to be willing to talk about things. Love that last point about being able to talk about things, because even if you guys go on some partnership retreat where you spend an entire weekend trying to map out all the details of the partnership, things are going to happen as you're actually working together. You're like, oh, shoot, we didn't think about that. Or, oh, shoot, we didn't think about this. And you have to be able to go back, have those difficult conversations and go back and update the agreements, the partnership documents, whatever it is, to reflect whatever decisions you've made. So it should be this kind of evolving document as your partnership continues to mature. And I have a question for you guys. Do you guys put out clauses in your joint venture agreements or your operating agreement? So I do a buy-sell agreement stating as to what's going to happen as our different exit strategies. If someone wants out, what am I going to buy it for? And my attorney puts together an equation. Like this is how we will determine the value of your LLC. And this is what you would pay at this point in time. I got to check my LLC operating agreement because I don't think I have that in there. But what we've done on our joint venture agreements with our partners is, and this is a recent change, is that it auto, the time duration is set to five years. So if after five years, the default, if nothing else happens, the default action is that we sell the property. The only way that we retain the properties if both parties agree to renew that partnership again for another 12 month period or whatever it is. Could you buy the property though? Like buy out the other owner? So like buy. that would be a sale. So you yeah. could still like be the buyer yeah. of the sale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Tony, do you want to take us to the rookie review? Yes, let's do that. To the rookie exam. Oh, exam. To the rookie exam. <laughs> Should I be nervous? Yeah. So th- this is our, our, our newest segment of the show. We're asking the same three questions to every rookie that comes onto the podcast. And the hope is that our listeners get some good value from this. But are you ready for the exam, Breezy? I'm ready. Let's do it. This has a pass rate of zero. So everyone that's taken this exam has failed. So I have very low hopes. What's, for, no, what, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it two correct that passed? Yeah. Is it one correct? How many do I no, have to get? There's no right or wrong answers to the rookie exam. We just want to get into the psyche here. So question number one. What is one actionable thing Ricky should do after listening to this episode? Okay, so analysis paralysis paralyzes everyone, myself included. I would think you guys agree that there's times you get in too into it and you don't figure it out. So this is my cure for that. Get up 30 minutes earlier than you would normally get up. The way I do it is I get up, go downstairs, drink a glass of water, put the coffee on, shower, straight down, get the coffee. My cell phone is still plugged in. I don't get on my not cell phone. Not even looking at it yet. Not yeah. even looking at it. I used to do it an hour early, 45 or an hour, but 30 minutes is the minimum in my opinion. Go do whatever task, whatever single five minute, 10 minute task towards your goals. I need to figure out who I'm going to call in that LLC question. Then you make that Facebook post. Do that, make the post, and then decide if you have a little time left, what am I going to do tomorrow? And if every day you just got up 30 minutes earlier and instead of giving your time, to a boss, giving your time to something else and giving the best moments and brain power of your day, which means you're fresh. And when you get home, at least for me, I am zapped. I am, and maybe I've had a bad day, maybe I'm whatever, and I just wanna sit down on the couch and veg out and watch Netflix. Well, I can't do that, or I'm gonna ruin a certain goal of mine. But if I'm in the morning, if I've accomplished one thing, even just one little thing forward, doesn't matter what it is, even if it was listening to this podcast and taking notes on something that you wanted to learn, Spend that time productively, read something, do something, do a task. And if you do that three, four, five, six, seven days a week, I got financial freedom in two and a half years. And that was basically my whole entire, like eight hours on Sunday and an hour every morning that I could spare. And I got financial freedom long before I thought I would. And I believe it's that consistent daily action. 30 minutes is plenty to make 
tons of progress. You know what? Congratulations on that. Took That's really awesome. And like you were willing to make that sacrifice. There's so many people that will not give up those eight hours on a Sunday or that hour during the week. And what you said about getting up and doing that one thing every morning towards your goal, that reminded me of the book, Eat That Frog, where you're getting rid of the hardest thing you have to do or like the thing you're procrastinating or putting off. You just get that done first and get it out of the way. And then you go on to the rest of your day. If you're scared or that task is too big, break it down smaller. What's the, the Brandon Turner most important next step in the journal? Like whatever it is, you can do a smaller task or a small, if it's collecting phone numbers for who you're gonna call, then do that. Then schedule it for your lunchtime, you're gonna call, whatever it is. But if you just make action every day, even if you don't spend your Sundays doing it. I know people have kids, they have much bigger whys than I do, I don't have kids yet, but even if you can't give up those extra hours, if you just made a little bit of progress every single day, you will get to your dreams. Whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, it will be much quicker than you think it's a snowball. But if you don't start it now, you'll wake up at 50 building somebody else's dream. You will have been paid to build someone else's dream instead of building your own. That's my why. I don't want to build somebody else's dream. I want to build one. It reminds me of this meme. You know, you guys may have seen it float around the internet, but it's like this employee walks up to his boss and his boss just bought like a new Ferrari or something. And the employee's like, man, that's a really nice car. And the boss responds and says, well, you know what? If you work hard, you put in a lot of hours, you stay dedicated, you stay motivated. Maybe I'll be able to buy another one. <laughs> Painful. Right? <laughs> but so true. But so true. But so true. Okay, so on to the next question. What is one tool, software, app, or system you use in your business today? Try to keep everything on my phone that I possibly can. I picked up eight rental units in the last year to manage for other people. One of the things that keeps me from having to get W2 is having some more income. And my grandparents were getting older. I took over theirs. So the first thing I did was, and I actually got this from your podcast, I picked up a Google phone a number that I never really used before. So I made an email address. If you don't have an email address, a business email address, that's the first thing you can do. You don't need a complicated name. I mean, I could have done my initials, abproperties.tn at gmail.com. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah, and it doesn't even, you don't even have to buy a domain. You can just use a Gmail, a Yahoo. And and then you have have a business account. It doesn't matter. You can always, whatever you want to do, but then create a Google Voice and give that number out to tenants. And here's why I've done that. Number one, I went to Brazil for two weeks in December. I went to Jamaica and New York for a week and a half in November. And I went on a 10-year wedding anniversary in October for 10 days to Mexico. That was all amazing. And I was able to manage my properties from my phone because I didn't have internet. I did have internet access. I did not have a cell phone reception, but all of that is Wi-Fi based. Additionally, had I not wanted to manage my properties, I could have just forwarded that number to somebody else's number or given another property manager or a friend in real estate that login and they could have managed my properties from their couch. And that would have all been done. My, my tenants would have never known the difference and there was never a risk that their call would go unanswered because they called myself. Also, a little tidbit, if you want to be a little bit more professional and you have a number that's a Google Voice number, you can put do not disturb hours. So you can choose when your call will go straight to voicemail and you can put a business voicemail. So your tenants or your business associates are not getting, hey, this is Andrew, leave a message. They can get, hey, this is Andrew with XYZ Properties. And you can link it to multiple phones. So my business partner and I, we use it when we send out mailers and it's linked to both of our phones. So we'll both get to talk. Both of our phones will ring. We'll both get the voicemail too. So this is the, there's many other things I use, but I think that's the simplest. Anyone can integrate that and you can get on your desktop too. So say you want to make a call from your desktop. You want to type text from a desktop. You want to log in, whatever. All you need is Wi-Fi. 
desktop, phone, whatever, and you're good to go. And that's helped me manage and scale and also not pull my hair out. My business partner too, whenever he meets a girl, he gives out the Google voice number. So Smart. I want to get to see you know, all the texts from the girls coming in. Yeah, I'm just kidding. He's standing right over there. If you get a wedding crasher stage five clinger, I mean, you gotta, you gotta protect yourself. I don't know about the do not disturb hours for Google Voice. We use that for all of our short-term rentals. So we're on the West Coast. We have a lot of East Coast folks. So sometimes they'll call us at like five o'clock in the morning, you know, so it's good to know the, the do not disturb. So initially I had set that up and I had a beer sales rep. I didn't want to give out my real number because I was worried an angry customer might call me on Saturday morning when the beer distributor's closed. Well, I found out, and I assume this is still the case, you can put in all of your do not disturb hours. So that's what I did initially. And then like when I set up my real estate number a few years ago, that's what I set up. My business hours, and you'll still see the notification on your phone. So it's, uh, it's not too bad for them either. So last question, Breezy, and this is the most important, but where do you see yourself in five years? That is something I have been struggling with a lot. I want to keep this as a lifestyle business. I was burned out to the max, and I didn't know it when I quit my job. I had a soul-crushing job for seven years that was got worse and worse and worse towards the end. It wasn't so bad at the beginning, but real estate was kind of forced me to retire and I was happy about it, retired. You know, I'm self-employed, but I call it retired. It feels better that way. And so now I want to continue building it. I may transition out of some of my short term. We have two more properties that are medium term now. So we have four units total that are medium term. It's still a lot of work. So I, I would like to transition into more regular rentals. I'd like to buy four properties this year, eight properties next year. And then after that, I'll have to reassess. And I'd love to buy some larger multifamilies. I don't know what that market's going to look like. I don't know if that will still be profitable. I don't really know, but I would like to continue working 20 to 30 hours a week at the most on a regular basis, not including the big weeks and whatever else. And I'd also like to still spend my time doing what I love because for seven years, I didn't get to travel and visit my in-laws in Italy. I still haven't been back because of the pandemic. I didn't get to spend my weekends doing the things I like to do, depending on, on what it was. If it fell on a Monday and a holiday, we worked all holidays, whatever, whatever. So I want to spend time doing what I want to do. And I want my work now to revolve around my schedule rather than my life revolving around my work schedule. So my hope is in five years, I've continued to keep that balance and I continue to be able to do what I love, volunteer in charities, do all the things that make me happy, give me fulfillment because real estate's great and I like it, but I don't believe it will bring me lasting fulfillment on its own. It's all the other things that I get to do because of real estate that bring me that lasting fulfillment. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that with us. And I definitely think you're going to get there. I mean, you reach financial freedom in two and a half years and you definitely have the drive, the vision and the work ethic. So thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's take it to our rookie rock star. If you guys want to get featured on the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, get active in the Bigger Pockets forums, get active on the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Facebook group, get active in Ashley's DMs. All those are very acceptable <laughs> <Slide>. places <laughs> to get featured as a, as a rookie rock star. So today's rookie rock star is Maddie B. And Maddie said, had my very first binder conversation with two inherited tenants. It worked flawlessly. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the binder conversation, it came from episode 448 with Dion McNeely, the real estate show. But Matt says, or Maddie says that both tenants went up to $1,200 per month, one from $900 and the other from $850. And that added $650 per month in cash flow. So he said, give it a shot. It cost me 70 bucks of staples to make the binders. And I practiced my pitch before I went over there. So Maddie, congratulations. Yeah, on, that's uh, awesome. An extra I love $650. The binders. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell everyone where they can find out some more information about you, where they can reach you and also about your podcast? Oh, sure. So I, uh, <laughs> 
I, I hope the podcast, the soccer podcast, if you're a big soccer fan and you love trying to football club, that's a very particular niche. You can check us out at the Section 109 podcast. And if you like listening to uh, people talk way too much about that, that's where you can find that. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I consume more than I put out, but I'm there's stuff on there. You can connect with me on the Bigger Pockets forums. I'm a pro member. I love Bigger Pockets. Again, there I consume more than I put out. It's an unbelievable resource. If you have a question, it's been answered. And if you don't have a pro membership, Bigger Pockets is not paying me for this, but the calculators are worth 10 years of pro membership just for one year. The ability to have infinite use of those calculators is so far. Plus, there's landlord, for, landlord yeah, the docs exactly. and all the other things. So get at me on the forums. You can hit me up on Instagram. And uh, yeah, if you want more tips, more like actionable things, I would love to share what I know. So maybe I'll write a blog post and put it in my bio on Instagram yeah. with uh, just the small things that I think you can do, the granular stuff to not make some of the mistakes I did. And anyone can apply to write blog posts too for bigger pockets. So you should submit Ooh. it through there. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll do one of those New Year's lists where they have the, the all the like hacks for a better life. Maybe I'll do that. Sometime. Yeah. We'll see. Awesome. You'll, you'll know by the time this is released if I uh, follow <laughs> Hold him all accountable. So everybody reach out to him on Bigger Pockets and Instagram and make sure that he does have that blog post written. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm Ashley at Wealthform Rentals and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson. And we will be back on Saturday with a rookie reply. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.